This is the Yahoo Finance Sportsbook Podcast. Okay, welcome back to Sportsbook. It is week two of the NFL season. Last week, you heard me rap about week one with Miles Udland, recurring guest and unfortunately Giants fan. Uh, enjoyed getting into it there. We had a nice argument about Bill Belichick's coaching tree. Uh, for this week, we're going to shift a little bit. We're going to look at the macro side of the league, where the NFL is right now, and of course, a lot of talk about the ongoing crusade that President Trump has had against the NFL. I've written about this a lot at Yahoo Finance. The source of his animus, clearly there's just more there than meets the eye. Uh, it's now been, by the way, exactly a full year since President Trump first began his kind of public tirades about NFL owners, saying that they should have nipped the protests in the bud, anti-Kaepernick, anti-protests. Uh, and how much is this affecting the league? We can debate. You know, of course, ratings are down. But as I'm always cautioning in my coverage, that's due to a lot of factors. Uh, certainly, I do think the politics is at least part of it now. It's hard to argue it isn't. But I think it is not the biggest part. I think, uh, you know, live sports viewing habits are changing. Anyway, to get into all this, specifically with a fascinating new book about the USFL, a little-known three-year-long lasting league that many people today may have forgotten about, and Trump's involvement in the USFL – uh, as well as his involvement in its death and its demise. The book is called Football for a Buck. The author is Jeff Perlman, and Jeff is here now. Hey, Jeff. See, I think you say little known because you were born a year after the lawsuit, <laughs> so it's little known to right. you, but to me, it was the greatest thing of all time. Right. Well, let's get into that. I, I mean, when you, uh, you know, you mentioned, I think either I saw it on Twitter or maybe it was in a, a forward to the book, but you mentioned that this was kind of a, a pet project of yours, something that you had always wanted to write a book on, and it took you a while to finally get there, and now this is kind of your, your passion project, your baby, a full book on the USFL. Was that a difficult sell? Was that a hard project to embark on? I mean, we got a 300-something page book on a football league that only existed for three years. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah, very, very hard. I'd wanted to do it for about a decade. I've had him. When I was a senior in high school in 1990, Mayo Pack High School in New York, I wrote my senior thesis for my AP English class. It was called The Downfall of the USFL. And wow. Mr. Height, my teacher, assigned a 20-page paper, which was a big deal in high school. I sure. wrote 40 pages <laughs> on The Downfall of the USFL. I would say, like, I've recently thought about this. Imagine you're a teacher and you get this 40-page paper. You're like, there's no way in hell I'm reading this crap. Like, really? I might skim five. There's no way Mr. Hyde. Well, unless read. you think this person later on is going to actually publish a book yeah, on the same topic. There's nothing pointing me in that direction. So uh, <laughs> I got a B plus. So um, okay. I actually made the whole thing one paragraph. I don't know what I was thinking. There were no paragraph breaks <laughs> in the whole paper. So, um, yeah, but I always, I always love the USFL. And for years, I've wanted to write a book. And for years, I've said to publishers, I really want to write a USFL book. And it was always, eh, no, no. So you pick bigger topics. And my agent literally said at one point, I was bugging him. He's like, Jeff, nobody wants an effing USFL book. And my last book was a biography of Brett Favre called Gunslinger. And I had multiple people bidding on it. And I said to Hunt Mifflin, I said, I will do Gunslinger for less for you if you mm. give me a USFL deal. And they gave me the worst money I've ever gotten. But it was an opportunity. So I did it. I usually do two to three three years for a book, it's pretty standard. This one I did in one, and it was just a nonstop blizzard of USFL. Were you able to use anything from your high school 40-page paper in the book? I don't know where that is. <laughs> I wrote Mr. Height, though, and, um, and asked him, and he did not still have the paper. I no. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, you got to send him a autographed copy. Yeah, he's the lead. The, uh, the intro of the book is all about Mr. Height in his class. All right, he's yes. sitting there. Yeah. Um, when you say that, that you, you know, cranked this out in a year, was part of the motivation and the thinking there I have a great news peg. 
which is, even though this book is not about Trump per se, he is a major character in it. Um, I was impressed, by the way, a nice sort of not giving into the temptation probably, but you know, no mention of Trump on the cover or anything like that. But, but Trump is a major force in this book, and I'm sure that a lot of the media coverage of the book is going to mention Trump. And you've got a great news peg right now. I mean, with everything going on in the NFL, and we'll get into that, he's been so aggressive about that. And the roots of all of that are kind of in what happened with the USFL. Was that part of the thinking is I have a chance to take what is really a sports-related book and get it into the mainstream, maybe even a little bit political news cycle? So it's really interesting. I never thought of it when I was pitching the book because he wasn't president, and the idea of him being president wasn't even, it wasn't even an idea. When I got the book deal, it still wasn't an idea. It was like, oh, Trump's running for president. Ha, ha, he, he. Um, <laughs> that was pretty good. And now um, the book comes out. It actually got pushed back. There was a, and also, my editor told me originally, she's like, yeah, USFL, you know, yeah. She's great, but yeah. And then when Trump became president, right. it's like, whoa. Right. You know, wow, wow. So my big fear wasn't timing it to anything. My actual big f- fear was that it would come out the same week as the Mueller report. Oh, sure. Up. And I kept thinking. Sure. And, of course, I had the, if not a worse thing, a near worse thing, which it came out the same day as Bob Woodward's book. Oh. Which was like, and uh, I wrote a Barry Bonds biography years ago, and there was another book called Game of Shadows, which became a runaway bestseller. My Bonds book came out two weeks after Game of Shadows. Oh. So I have experience in the right, disappointing right. arts. Well, and there has been another book about the USFL. I don't know if something like that deters you, right? Well, the $1 was, League? Yeah, that came out in 1987, right. so I wasn't... And there was another <laughs> book that came out last year, but it was independently published. It was excellent, but it wasn't really on the radar. Yeah. When you say that everything happening with Trump did fuel your editor's excitement a little more, do you wonder, but, you know, why play this game? But but did you wonder, well, wait a minute, what if I, you know, if I were repitching the whole thing now, would there be a lot more interest and I could have gotten oh, some better kind of deal? I've never thought of that, I swear to God. The answer is definitely yes, <laughs> but I never thought of it. And the truth of the matter is... It's not as obvious as you would think. It's a really weird, I've never had this before. Usually I write a book, you go all over sports media, right? And now it's like you're pitching two different books. And mm. a lot of people in sports, that whole stick to sports thing is real. It's very real. Which is amazing because I feel like we're, we're past that. You can't do that anymore. Sure, I, you can't, but it's still a very real thing. And a lot of people are like, you get this a lot. Look, I didn't spend, I'm not spending X amount to read about Trump. I want to read about sports. Wow. So. You're pitching this book to a sports audience, and you're pitching this book to also put, you know, you're trying to get on MSNBC and Fox News and sure. here and all these places. So it's a real sort of split personality kind of pitch that makes it very complicated. And I can't always tell if it's helpful or hurtful. Sometimes it's both. That's so interesting. Um, I don't want to get too far afield, but because it's a topic that interests me, I mean, as, you know, a journalist or, or uh, you know, people in the media, and, and we all wonder about this same thing of, you know, how political do you want to get publicly? And you say there are a lot of people who just want this to be a sports book. They don't want it, you know, politicized. Do you worry much or think about then the the public persona of the author on Twitter, meaning you, you know, tweeting, oh, my God, look at this thing Trump said today. And mm-hmm. do you think, well, what if someone is, is eyeing the book and is interested and then they see that and they say, oh, so this is going to be a book that's like anti-Trump? Or- so that's a, that's a great, great question. I haven't been asked that. So I basically spent many hours on social media dumbfounded at things Trump was doing. Right. I'm a liberal guy. I am yep. a liberal guy. That does not mean when I report books, I think I'm a very, my career is one of unbiased reporting. I believe that strongly. I don't think you'll find anyone who disagrees with that. I am a liberal human being. Um, just a classic example of this, what you talked about. Fox and Friends has a host, Brian Kilmeade. Mm-hmm. I've been on his radio show before. He's a nice guy to me. I hate his stances, his positions, everything. And I went off on a bat on that guy earlier this year. Now my publicist is like, it's weird. I can't get you on Fox and Friends, oh. and I'm like, yeah, I'm not <laughs> right. that surprised about that one. And you're, right. 
I mean, you just have to be true to yourself and try to be honest. So it is what it is. Uh, let's get into the meat of the book. You know, enough Trump. Let's talk about the USFL. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we know from the book uh, why it failed, and I don't necessarily want to recount the whole story on this show, but, you know, there was a lawsuit. The USFL took the NFL to court. USFL actually won the, the trial but mm -hmm. was only awarded a, a dollar judgment, hence football for a buck. But what interests me now is, okay, that was, you know, more than 20 years ago. In theory, just 30, in a vacuum, more than 30. More than 30. Yeah. In theory, the idea of a second pro football league isn't a bad idea. Why not? I mean, if the appetite is there for the NFL, why not another one? Why hasn't one come along in all that time? We have two upstarts trying, the XFL yep. and then the Alliance, uh, two new leagues. And I, think I keep getting pitched on the Alliance, by the way. Do I you? Just, I, maybe my own lack of interest is not is a sign of everyone's lack of interest, but I just, I'm good. For I, think, um, I think the Alliance is actually a good idea. If, if an idea is going to work, I think the Alliance has it, which is spring. The USFL did smart things. Regional, again, drafting regional players. I grew up in New York. There's a kid at Rutgers I used to watch. Now he can play for the local team. I, you know, I'm, in, I'm into him, right? I went to Delaware, uh, University of Delaware guys on the team. I'm into that guy. Or, D, or D2 guys who were great. Yeah, like um, the star of the USFL is this guy, Sam Mills. He was the best player. He was a linebacker. Uh, he went to, you know, Div Division three college in New Jersey, you know, Montclair State. So, yeah, there's a lot of pride in that. So I think the league is smart. But I think the NFL, uh, you know, we talked about this. There's an overkill. But I also think the other thing, I really do, if you said to my kids, we can go to an Alliance football game and watch the whatever, the Guna Hills, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. My kid is going to be on his phone, or my daughter, who's 15, is going to be on her phone, and she's going to be like, eh, you know, I don't know. And I'll be like, no, there'll be food. We'll get ice cream. And my kid isn't addicted to her phone, but like, uh, I don't uh. I think I'd rather just talk to my friend. You know, like, we, have, we are so over-consumed by football in this country I think that's a big battle. Are people even interested? Do people want to get off their couch anymore to go to a game to watch the local college kid? But he wasn't that great, but he was our quarterback now playing against other mediocre players. I don't know. Well, and I, uh, that's a good segue. I mean, I still I have some questions about the book, but because I have you here and you've written books mm -hmm. on lots of topics and you wrote a book on the Mets I loved and, and we cover a lot of sports business related stuff on this podcast, let's talk a little bit about attendance and, and sort of the change in that. I mean, uh, we hear stats that MLB at the park attendance is at like a 15-year low this season. Um, so what should Major League Baseball change and what's the problem there? And, and actually, it's funny you say about phones because just recently I was at a game and I saw two people in front of me. There were a couple, probably a little younger than me, probably early 20s, and both of them were playing games on their phones. And I mean the entire game. Mm -hmm. I'm not exaggerating. Like, didn't look up from their phones once. And it was angering me. And I know I should just, well, who cares? But it was just like, why did they pay to be here? Uh, is all this doomed, or how can we get people back to stadiums, to ballparks? Of course, another problem, the experience of watching at home is just so good now yeah. that to get people to come in person is, is tough. I think baseball, um, and I covered baseball at Sports Illustrated for a long time, and I always thought baseball had a real marketing problem. Um, namely, the best thing about going to a baseball game isn't seeing Mike Trout patrol center field. It's not seeing Aaron Judge hit a home run. I just don't think it is. I think the best thing about baseball is – you go and you walk around the park and you get a hot dog and right. you get a so like my son and I go to Angels games all the time. We pay six bucks for tickets on StubHub. We sit mm -hmm. first. We're gonna sit. We're gonna see how high we can sit in that corner. Then we're gonna go to that corner. I, I swear to God, this is what we do. We walk around. We'll take one of my books and put it somewhere <laughs> and tweet it and see if anyone gets it. Like, cool. It's an experience. And yeah. baseball, watching baseball is an experience of amazing laid-back loveliness. It's a day at the park. Yep. 
there's a nostalgia there that no other sport but has the same level. But it's not even just nostalgia. It actually is enjoyable. It's so <laughs> laid back and so cool, and the food is all there. And blah, blah. But baseball doesn't sell it. They, they, you never see a commercial where it's like, just come out to the park and have a good time. Come out to the park, kick back. It's T-shirt day. Have a lemonade and a, and a hot dog. It's two-for-one day. I just think that's the sell. Because the truth of the matter is, Mike Trout would do three outstanding things in the course of your three hours there. It's not like watching um, Leonard Fournette run down the field. It does not have that level of excitement. Don't mm-hmm. try to fool me that it does. It doesn't. But it's a delightful and relaxing day. Yeah, I, I agree that the experience is, is so good, but they need to market that to younger people. I think uh, so. And they, they've tried. But, yeah, I mean, related to that, I'd love your take on kind of the – I'd call it the Mike Trout problem because, of course, recently I'm sure you saw the whole kerfuffle with, you know, Trout isn't popular enough. I mean, real baseball people seem to agree that he's the very best player in the whole league, mm-hmm. and yet he's not famous. He's not a known person outside of, of L.A. Uh, maybe the problem is being on the Angels, but, you know, or that's certainly part of it. But, you know, someone asked the commissioner, and, and Manfred basically said, like, well, he's boring. Uh, now, my own take is I, I do think he's boring, but also the larger question here philosophically is, like, well— if you're a really great athlete in your sport and you're a professional athlete, well, why is it your job to also be interesting and compelling off the field or off the court and be someone that becomes marketable and, and endorsement friendly? I mean, whose job is it to promote Trout more? And the, the larger conversation here we love to have here at Yahoo Finance is, you know, who is the face of baseball, basketball, whatever sport you want? And I think the problem is, like, if you look at the NBA, there's LeBron, there's Durant, there's Curry, there's Harden. There it's are huge mega stars. Yeah. Yes. Or in the NFL, there are at least a few, you know, mostly quarterbacks, but there's Brady. There was Peyton, you know, Rogers, Russ Wilson. Yeah. Sure, and Rodgers, right, I should say, before Russ Wilson. But if you look at pro baseball, right now, there's no guy that is a national star. Even Aaron Judge, who plays in New York, it's still too new. You know, baseball fans like uh, Bryce Harper, oh, you know, make baseball fun again. But none of these guys are people who are known all around the country, even by people who aren't big baseball fans. I think that's a problem. The funny thing is, I just thought of this, is um, – I wrote, <clears throat> excuse me. I wrote this story on uh, on John Rocker for Sports Illustrated, the racist baseball player. And baseball is very insistent about putting these guys out there and having them give their personalities. And there's an example of a guy who gave his personality, and there's like, mm. please don't give so much of your personality. <laughs> right. Like, right. may you be damned to get what you wish for, you know. And, and then he went on Survivor, and yeah, it and did not right. go well. It did not. And then he was selling <laughs> Speak English T-shirts on his website, oh, so right. it's all been great for John Rocker. But I think, um, I just think the problem with baseball is it's a, it's a. It's a boring sport for a lot of people, and you could be the most exciting person in the world. I mean, again, we go to a lot of Angels games. Mike Trout is great. 95% of the time, he's not doing a damn thing just because of the nature of baseball. So I agree he's a boring personality. That's not his fault. We're not all you, you know, or me, or whatever. <laughs> We're not all talkative, you know? Some people just aren't. He, Mike Trout has probably spent his entire time. Also, I will say this. Actually, this is an interesting point. Baseball has changed the way its players are made. So I live in Southern California, which is a baseball factory. My son is 11. He got tired of baseball because at nine, all the kids start taking it way too seriously. And the parents, they make their kids pick a sport and they hire a private tutor and they're going to the baseball academy in the summer and they're raising these freaking cyborgs who have no outside interest. Like I did a profile for Bleach Report last year about Sam Darnold, the Jets Mm -hmm. quarterback. Sam Darnold was brought up playing baseball, basketball, football, everything in the street. He's a fascinating guy and a really well-spoken guy. Most of these baseball players coming up, their lives are baseball. Like, Mike Trout well, grew up— J- Jordan Spieth in golf. I mean. Right. His life is—like, they are brought up to be cyborgs of their sport. So then when you say, 
why isn't he interesting? Mm. Why isn't he interesting? Because right. all he's done his whole life is play a boring <laughs> game of baseball. All he's shot for is this moment. Is he going to have an opinion on Trump? Is he going to have an opinion about where the best pasta is in town? Yeah. No, because he doesn't think that way. He doesn't do enough Instagramming. He doesn't, like, he doesn't, but not even. He probably has a private chef who makes his food in his house. <laughs> he certainly has someone do his laundry. He's not walking around Disneyland meeting people. Like, he's a boring human being because he's oh. been made to be boring. What do you expect? It's like John Rocker was a kid from Macon, Georgia, who was kind of made to be a racist. What do you expect? <laughs> it just happens that way. We may, we are. I mean, you can't make something out of something that's not. Anyway, there's my little diatribe for you. Do you think, uh, you know, moving from the popularity of players or promoting the best players more, is there anything else Major League Baseball should do? I mean, you know, you say it, it suffers because it's just kind of a boring sport unless you love it. But, you know, we, they are trying to make some changes, make the games a little faster. I kind of think that's silly. Like, okay, shave six minutes here and there. What's that really going to do? But is there something that, that the league should be doing to, to modernize better? I don't really think so. I th- it's kind of like how they say, like, uh, football is getting safer, right? There comes a point where it's just a dangerous game. And you can do a million things. People are still going to suffer concussions, knee injuries, yep. blah, 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 blah. Baseball, at its core, is a somewhat boring game. And I love baseball. But it is watching the Brewers play the Cubs in July when a team is seven and a half out. It's not interesting. It's just not interesting. Now, it might be lovely and relaxing and great, but you can't make something that's not interesting interesting. So you can color it all you want. It is what it is. As a guy who's written about football and baseball and a wide range of sports, other than the big four we talk so much about, is there anything going on in sports either, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about MLS. I get, I get, you know, pitched a lot about, oh, look at the growth of Major League Soccer. Uh, MMA has become really... Uh, fast-growing, you know, and a lot of uh, pro athletes and celebrities are involved in this big group of investors in the mm-hmm. UFC. Anything like that below the the big four that get all the attention that has caught your attention? Yeah, you? I covered, this is crazy. This was the craziest thing I've covered in forever. Um, the Athletic, the website The Athletic, I write for them sometimes, and they sent me to Wyoming to cover the first sanctioned bare-knuckled boxing match in America in more than 100 years, and I went. And it was, to me, it was like the carnival. I was just there for the carnival. And it was a crazy nut job carnival of all time. The event was sold out. It did amazing numbers on pay-per-view, which I did not think it would do. I don't remember the numbers, but they were eye-opening. I think Mississippi just sanctioned it as well. And there's something insane about watching a boxing match and hearing this, like, like that. Well, it's like Fight Club. Right. Yeah, Fight Club, great movie. But... I mean, it's brutally, did it get, like, gruesome? Yes. Yeah. It was super bloody, and that sound is just, like, haunting, and you see someone punch someone, because usually you don't hear anything. That's the thing about boxing. Right. You don't, even MMA, you don't hear that pop, 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 skin to bone. It was so jarring and so barbaric, and I felt like a lesser human, and I was mesmerized at the same time. Wow. Mesmerized. And I guarantee you, you're going to see a lot more states sanction that as MMA rises, and boxing is looking for a way to sort of expand what is not expanding base. Jeff, uh, There's an answer you did not expect. No, to not at all. And also, now I really want to find like video footage of that. It's out there. Not that I'm like hungry for the bloody part. You and I, right now, let's go at it. See it. Yeah. Let's go. Totally. Yeah. Um, I'll just take my blazer and tie off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, how many books have you have you published now? Eight. Eight. Before this USFL book, is there one that stuck out to you that you think of as that was the one you're either most proud of, not necessarily the biggest commercial success, but the one closest to your heart? Yeah, it was. Uh, I wrote a book called Sweetness about Walter Payton. And um, when I was a young and at Sports Illustrated in 1999, Walter Payton was dying. And um, he was promoting organ donation. 
and an editor of mine, I was, an, I was a scrub at SI, and an editor said, would you want to go to Illinois and interview Walter Payton? I said, yes, but I was actually terrified, and I always will remember showing up at his office and being greeted by this shriveled man, I didn't even know it was him, who looked like he was about 60, and he had jaundiced yellow eyes, and it was Walter Payton, and I sat across from him just like I'm sitting across from you, and it was one of the most hard, he knew he was gonna die, I knew he was gonna die. Yeah. He was a shrunken man who was once a great giant you know, hero, and I was, I, I've carried that with me for a long time, and that book was really, a lot of that was just about sort of carrying that with me. Does that, does having written that book make you care more than the average fan appears to about the annual Walter Payton Man of the Year Award? That's an interesting question. My kids always point it out. Like, it'll be, they'll be like, the Man of the Year, and there's Jared and Brittany, his kids, and oh, there they are, you know? And I, um, they did not love that book, the family. They the helped me. Hmm. They did not. Because it was, it told some stuff about Walter Payton that wasn't really out there. Um, I love that family. I think Jared Payton is one of the best guys out there. I think Brittany is fantastic. They're just a great family. They didn't love the book. It happens. For me, that first kind of early assignment moment, uh, I was at Fortune, and it actually was a joint story with SI that we did. I was 24, and we went and spent a few days with Lee Steinberg, the sports agent. I know Lee really well. Yeah, yeah, I got to know him well. You went to uh, Um, his office in Newport. uh, Yes, Yeah, exactly. Well, Irvine at the, yeah, near. Well, now it's in Newport, actually. Right, okay. in Newport. Yeah, this he was, represented this Steve was 2012. Young. He was Steve yes. Young's agent. Well, he? I mean, you talk about the USFL, and, yeah. and Lee Steinberg, you know, was uh, Warren Moon. Was yeah. his, was his but he didn't play in the USFL. Client. He almost played in the USFL. Right, right, the right, right, right. Yeah. Bartkowski yeah. Um, yeah. is in there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, when you look at this book, the new USFL book, and maybe, you know, a sports book, the whole enjoyment, you just enjoy the telling of the story. There doesn't necessarily have to be a message. But to you, what is the takeaway from the book? I mean, it's kind of enjoyment. It's kind of, um, my wife said something the other day. It has stuck with me. She's smarter. She truly is more intelligent than I am. And she said, I was kind of down about promoting this book. And it's like, you try and you try. And the whole Woodward coming out of it, that was a, that was a gut punch, the Woodward book coming out the same day. And I have nothing It's interesting, though, because different you know, I know. target demographic, maybe. But you know what? It's hard, because even though this book talks a lot about Trump, Trump sucks up so much of the news cycle. It just goes whoosh, Absolutely. And then the, the Woodward book comes out, and it's and you're like, I'm over here, I'm over here. And every week now there's a Trump yes. tell-all book. So, I mean, even if it wasn't this week, like, right. wait two weeks and there's going to be the Stormy Daniels book. I mean, it's... And that actually is why I don't want people to think of this as a Trump tell-all book. Because there's always a Trump tell-all, Marosa book. There's always another freaking book about Donald Trump. And I was like, this is not a Donald Trump book. Um, but my wife said to me, she's like, uh, she's like, you know what? Like, nobody was talking about the USFL before two weeks ago. She's like, and even if it's only five people talking about it now, People are talking about it. Like people are do- right now. We are sitting here mm-hmm. talking about the USFL only because I wrote that book. Right? I went on shows because I wrote. People are tweeting at me about the USFL. That is an insane amount of satisfaction I get from that. That people are remembering this league and these players and this long ago thing that was really special to me. So it's not going to be my bestseller. There's zero chance <laughs> unless something crazy happens. But I'll go down really feeling satisfied that this exists. That's great. Well, I hope our listeners check it out. The book is Football for a Buck. Jeff Perlman. Thanks, bud. Soon to be available on eBay for a buck. There you go. Oh. Oh. I'm just kidding. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Okay, well, hit us up. Let us know what you think. And remember, you can follow Jeff on Twitter. He's good on Twitter. It's at Jeff Perlman, P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. As you know, if you've been listening 
to the podcast for the last year. We love having in authors of new sports-related books. And tell us if you're picking those books up and what you think of them. Remember, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the Sportsbook Podcast and that we come out every Thursday morning. See you next Thursday. Goodbye.